We tend to take things for granted until they disappear or don't work anymore. All of a sudden, it becomes a crisis. We tend to think that newer, faster, and more powerful is better than what came before, especially when it comes to technology. But what if this newer, faster, and more powerful technology was destroying something we take for granted? What if the coolest, newest, fastest technology turned out to have a devastating and permanent effect on the world around us, and eventually and inevitably on our own lives, whether we use the technology or not? This is the dichotomy of new technology. This is how individuals and corporations in pursuit of profits are negatively impacting the world as we know it. And this is Green Street. Hello again and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, medical professionals, engineers, authors, reporters, activists, and others all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what is going on in the world around you that you may not know about and how it impacts you and your family. Today on Green Street, we'll be talking about the competing interests of technology purveyors and the rest of the world's population and how the expansion of wireless networks around the world may be slowly but inevitably harming the natural world in ways we are only now beginning to understand. So while giant corporations make sure everyone in the world has at least one cell phone, and those cell phones are completely dependent on a worldwide network of wireless antennas, including tens of thousands of antennas orbiting the world from outer space, the trillions of living things that share this planet with us are screaming out, what are you thinking of? The fact is our insect population, which we often regard as pests, but which provide services on which we depend whether we realize it or not, is declining worldwide at a pretty alarming rate. This has a cascading effect as crops fail to be pollinated, soil becomes sterile, bird populations decline, and all of a sudden there's nothing in the fruit and vegetable aisle at Whole Foods because we can't produce food anymore. Yeah, we have instant communication with our wireless devices, but nothing to eat. So on our show today, we'll talk with a naturalist who lives on a remote Greek island and who, from her very unique environmental perch, has been documenting this very alarming and rapidly deteriorating situation. It's chilling and it's riveting, so please stay tuned for that. But first, here's Patty with the headlines and top stories from the Green Street Newsroom. What do you got for us today? Well, as always, it's not good news, but it's news and it's really interesting. Okay. So the first one is published in Environmental Health News. The title is Evidence of PFAS in Organic Pasta Sauces. Testing finds fluorine, an indicator of PFAS, in four popular organic sauces. The good news? The other 51 brands tested showed no sign of forever chemicals. Four popular organic pasta sauces have detectable levels of fluorine, an indicator of toxic PFAS, according to a new report from Momovation. Partnering with EHN.org, the environmental wellness blog and community Momovation, tested 55 sauces and found levels of fluorine ranging from 10 parts per million up to 21 parts per million in four sauces. They are... 365 Whole Foods Organic Tomato Basil Pasta Sauce, Muir Glen Organic Italian Herb Pasta Sauce, 
Organicville Italian Herb Pasta Sauce, and Trader Joe's Organic Tomato Basil Marinara. EHN.org partially funded the testing, and Pete Myers, Chief Scientist of Environmental Health Sciences, which publishes Environmental Health News, reviewed the findings. While the testing doesn't prove per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, are in the sauces, fluorine is a very strong indicator of the forever chemicals, which have been linked to everything from cancer to birth defects to lower vaccine effectiveness. The new investigation is the latest from Momovation, which previously found fluorine in everyday products such as yoga pants and leggings and clean beauty brands makeup. PFAS has been found in food before also. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 2019 reported PFAS in several types of food, including meats, seafood, and grocery store chocolate cake. However, Momovation found evidence of the chemicals in brands that are marketed as organic. It's unclear how PFAS made it into certain foods, but due to widespread use of PFAS across industries, the chemicals can contaminate consumer goods through manufacturing lubricants and coatings, misidentified raw materials, pesticides, personal protective equipment, and plastic packaging. While the testing is concerning, 92% of sauces tested had no detectable fluorine. The good news is that only 8% of the tomato and pasta sauces contain PFAS, but why should there be any in our food, said Linda Birnbaum, who served as the director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and National Toxicology Program for more than a decade and who also reviewed the investigation. The testing is part of an ongoing effort by Momovation and EHN.org to identify PFAS in common consumer products. You can see the full results at Mamavation. That's M-A-M-A-V-A-T-I-O-N. There's not that many ways to make tomato sauce, right? I mean, it's a certain... Right, and and they do mention it in here, but I do believe that it's, um, it's... These food products are being contaminated from the manufacturing processes. I mean, even just from conveyor belts. You know, they put tomatoes on those conveyor belts, and those conveyor belts have lubricant on them. So you're talking about lubricants and coatings and those kinds of things that are used in in processing plants. And so that's some of the way that it gets into the food supply. Yeah, Hmm. But it's really interesting right now because scientists are really scrambling to find out how exactly... PFAS gets into our bodies. I mean, we know that it's in our water, we know that it's in our air, but you know, that's gotta be parts per trillion, tiny, yeah. tiny little yeah. parts. I recently read, and I'm, I'm leaning towards the theory that wearing synthetic clothing, especially fluffy things like, uh, like fleeces, fleeces. and say, you know, yeah. those soft blankets that you wrap your kids in who are sitting on the sofa watching TV, there's tiny, tiny little pieces of microfibers coming off those blankets and, the, and, that, and that, that clothing. And the fact is that those microfibers are plastic. I don't think people really get it. Yeah. That anything besides wool, cotton, linen, you know, and so on and so on are, you know, natural products that come from animals and from plants. Yeah. They're all made from petrochemicals. Yoga pants. Oil huh? and gas. Yoga you're opinions. wearing plastic. I know it's hard to hard to imagine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What else you got? Okay, this is a really interesting one. So, and this is just very new, uh, and this is printed in the or published in the Los Angeles Times. It was written by Suzanne Rust and Rosanna Z, and the title is "State Accuses Exxon Mobil 
of deceiving the public, perpetrating myth of plastics recycling. California's Attorney General has announced a first-of-its-kind investigation into the fossil fuel and petrochemical industries for their alleged role in causing and exacerbating a global crisis in plastic waste pollution. Attorney General Rob Bonta said on Thursday that his office has subpoenaed ExxonMobil Corporation seeking information related to the company's, quote, historic and ongoing efforts, end quote, to minimize the public's understanding of the harmful consequences of plastic. Quote, for more than half a century, the plastics industry has engaged in an aggressive campaign to deceive the public, perpetuating a myth that recycling can solve the plastics crisis, Bonta said. Fossil fuels such as oil and gas are the raw material of most plastics. In recent decades, the accumulation of plastic waste has overwhelmed waterways and oceans, sickening marine life and threatening human health. ExxonMobil denied the accusations. Quote, we reject the allegations made by the attorney general's office in its press release, said Julie L. King, a spokeswoman for the corporation. We are focused on solutions and meritless allegations like these distract from the important collaborative work that is underway to enhance waste management and improve circularity. Please. King said ExxonMobil has been collaborating with governments, including the state of California, communities and other industries to support commercial scale advanced recycling. Despite the public's perception that plastics are heavily recycled, more than 90% of them end up either buried in landfills, burned, or flushed into our oceans. Internal documents from the 1970s warned industry executives that recycling was infeasible and that there was serious doubt that plastic recycling could ever be made viable on an economic basis. Indeed, despite the industry's decades-long recycling campaign, the vast majority of plastic products by design cannot be recycled, and the U.S. plastic recycling rate has never broken 9%. No other state or country has undertaken such an investigation into the oil and plastics industry. However, California's probe does mirror other climate change investigations and lawsuits that governments across the nation have launched against the fossil fuel industry, accusing it of deception and seeking compensation for the risks and dangers caused by its products. Jennifer Savage, who leads Surfrider Foundation's national efforts to stop plastic pollution, said, quote, This is connecting the dots at a higher level than we have ever seen before, in a way that could hold fossil fuel companies accountable for one of the greatest environmental crises of our time. Most people don't realize how tightly plastic production is tied to the fossil fuel industry, she said. People don't think of plastic pollution as a fossil fuel or climate change issue, but they're truly two sides of the same coin. The only way that we are going to solve the plastic pollution crisis is to hold the fossil fuel industry accountable. And this is a major step in that direction. The plastics industry began an aggressive campaign in the 1980s to sway public opinion when state legislatures and local governments tried to consider restricting or banning plastic products. Matthew Kastner, a spokesperson for the American Chemistry Council, a trade group representing ExxonMobil and the petrochemical industry, said in a statement that, quote, plastics belong in our economy, not our environment. Our organization is committed to a more sustainable future that includes bold government actions as well as increasing recycling and waste management infrastructure. Plastics never fully degrade. They just break down into smaller and smaller pieces called microplastics. 
These particles often contain harmful chemical additives such as flame retardants or plasticizers, and a widely cited scientific review of 52 studies concluded that humans on average consume a credit card's worth of microplastic each week. Some researchers project that by 2050, there may be more plastic by weight in the world's oceans than there are fish. UC Davis researchers once sampled seafood sold at markets in Half Moon Bay and found that one quarter of fish and one third of shellfish contained plastic debris. Nevertheless, plastic production has continued to grow and records show that the fossil fuel and petrochemical industries are expanding their plastics infrastructure and capabilities. In the U.S. alone, companies from across the globe has, have invested $208 billion since 2010 in new facilities, expansions, and factory restarts. Ignore the facts. Just plain outright lie. Why and, and then why again and why again and why again? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to see this. I'm, I, this is, I think the public is beginning to wake up to the whole plastic issue and the fact that we're, our own bodies are becoming contaminated with plastic. And at what point are right. we going to do something? And it's really interesting when you try to avoid plastic in mm. personal care products and cleaning products and laundry products and, and you know, food. It's crazy. Right. Okay, and right. my last one is really interesting as well. This was also published in EHN, Environmental Health News, written by Grace Van Dielen, and it is called Chemicals in Everyday Products Are Spurring Obesity, warns a new review. Many years ago, endocrinologist and medical doctor Robert Lustig had a patient, a five-year-old girl who was suffering from obesity. Unable to determine the cause of her obesity, Lustig scanned her for tumors. The culprit was not a tumor, nor the girl's diet, exercise, or family history. Rather, it was her body wash. A Victoria's Secret's bath gel, labeled for adults only, had been the source of a chemical, a phytoestrogen, in the girl's blood known to spur obesity. Phytoestrogen is found in plants and acts on the body's estrogen receptors, which induces the production of fat cells. It's one of a class of chemicals referred to as obesogens according to a set of new reviews published last month in the journal Biochemical Pharmacology. As obesity rates rise in the U.S., scientists are working to understand what's driving the epidemic. While diet and exercise are major factors, these reviews point toward obesogens as another important but understudied contributor. The three reviews which cover what obesogens are, how they cause obesity, and methods for studying them point out how paying attention to obesogens can help shift focus in obesity research from treatment to prevention. Obesogens are a subset of endocrine disrupting chemicals, which are found pretty much everywhere and which disrupt a body's hormone activity. Obesogens are generally defined as any chemical that can cause the human body to produce more fat than it would normally. These can include substances we usually think of as fattening, like sugars or artificial sweeteners. However, many obesogens are not found in food. Rather, they enter the body through other consumer products, like makeup, shampoos, soaps, plastics, and cleaners. Obesogens can also get into food from pesticides and food packaging. These chemicals are shed from such products and can accumulate in household dust, which people breathe in. In the U.S., obesity has risen steadily over the past decades, from 30% of adults in 2000 to 42% of adults in 2018. Obesity in children has risen as well, 
from 14 percent in 2000 to 19 percent in 2019. People think about obesity mostly in the context of calories. If you eat more calories than you burn, you'll gain weight. To deal with obesity, many clinicians will advise reducing the number of calories eaten and increasing exercise. Diet and exercise undoubtedly play a major role in obesity levels. However, the persistent rise in obesity in the U.S. indicates that something besides diet and exercise is at play. Doctors and healthcare workers are focused on the fact that obesity is due to overeating. So if you're obese, you can take drugs, you can be on a diet, or you can have surgery, and that will take care of the obesity. Bruce Blumberg, a professor of developmental biology at the University of California, Irvine, and an author on the reviews, agrees, quote, that's still the view of the medical community, that obesity really has everything to do with calories and activity and not much to do with anything else, he told EHN. While exposure to obesogens as an adult can cause weight gain, there are specific periods in development when people are most susceptible to obesogen exposure. Exposure is a particularly important consideration for pregnant people, the review warns, as the chemicals can pass through the placenta and affect the development of a fetus's metabolic system in utero. That exposed fetus will have a higher risk of obesity later in life. Young children are also more vulnerable to obesogens. During early childhood, the metabolic system is still under development and susceptible to chemical influences. Individuals can reduce their exposure by avoiding prepackaged and processed foods, which often come in containers made with obesogens like PFAS and other plastic additives. The authors of the reviews urge that obesogen exposure is such a widespread public health problem that it should be dealt with through regulation. For example, the Environmental Protection Agency should take responsibility for testing for and regulating such chemicals. That's not happening because of a lack of will and funding, and the EPA is heavily influenced by the industries that are regulated. That's not the way they're supposed to work. Wow. That's mm -hmm. just an amazing news article. That poor little five-year-old kid who's obese because she's using some body wash. That's in the shower, probably, and yeah. she probably can't even read what's in it. Wow. Yeah, How what's in it, or that? that it says for adults only. Mm. You know what? You know, we keep talking about the same things. I know. Slightly I know. different angles, but it's always the same things. Every week, the news is just filled with some huge industry. You know, whether it's the fossil fuel industry or the plastics industry, which is the fossil fuel industry, or the pharmaceutical industry or the pesticide industry or, you know, the, the telecom industry, they all know. Yeah. They, they know there's a problem. No, they know the damage they're causing. They know the damage they're causing to the environment. They know the damage that they're causing to human health. And it yeah. doesn't matter. Profit rules. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Since the advent of electrification in the late 1800s and wireless communications in the 1930s, ambient levels of radiation from devices, broadcast facilities, land-based telecom infrastructure, satellite, and military applications have gradually risen across a range of frequencies in the non-ionizing bands of the electromagnetic spectrum. There's been a broad discussion in the media and elsewhere about non-ionizing electromagnetic fields 
and their effects on humans, especially since the International Agency for Research on Cancer at the World Health Organization classified extremely low-frequency magnetic fields and radio-frequency radiation as a 2B possible human carcinogen, similar to lead, exhaust fumes, DDT, and formaldehyde. But there is a larger environmental downside to rising ambient EMF exposures, particularly RF radiation from popular mobile communications devices, Wi-Fi antennas, and all accompanying infrastructure that is being overlooked by environmentalists, researchers, and government regulators alike. We may be missing critical physiological effects across species based on obsolete assumptions about how low-level, far-field exposures are too weak to adversely affect living tissue. We have yet to take into consideration the unique physiologies of other species or how they use the environment in ways that humans do not when we assume that the unfettered use of electromagnetic fields and radiofrequency radiation can continue unabated and be allowed to grow indefinitely. Ambient electromagnetic fields such as EOF from power lines, wiring and electrical appliances, and RF radiation used in all broadcast wireless communications and transmitting devices are biologically active and may cause adverse effects to different species of living organisms. Living organisms evolved in a matrix of environmental non-ionizing electromagnetic fields, particularly the Earth's geomagnetic field. These natural fields are required to keep organisms well and living in harmony. For example, it has long been known that the geomagnetic field is needed to coordinate embryonic development and provide information for directional migration of insects and birds. These fields are relatively weak and also vary with location. For millions of years, living organisms lived and thrived in these fields. It is therefore logical to assume that man-made fields, which are unfamiliar to living organisms, could disturb their normal physiological functions. And this could happen at very low intensities of the unfamiliar fields. The proliferation of wireless communication systems in particular may pose a dangerous challenge to living organisms on Earth. In addition, there is the more difficult challenge that these novel EMF exposures do not allow living organisms to adapt or adjust since technology's signaling characteristics change rapidly as the new technologies emerge and are constantly being developed. Despite accumulating evidence, there has been a broad disconnect in environmental circles regarding the possibility that there may be serious consequences to this increasing cumulative EMF background from devices like cell phones, smartphones, tablets, iPods, iPads, Kindles, wireless internet, including Wi-Fi, 2G, 3G, 4G, 4G LTE, and now the 5G Internet of Things. Tower and antenna infrastructure need to support vast wireless systems, and the recent smart grid metering systems being built across industrialized countries by numerous utility companies, as well as the auto industry with anti-collision and remote sensing devices now embedded in vehicles, among others. In fact, major national organizations like the National Resources Defense Council and the Sierra Club are active proponents of smart grid and meters and other wireless technologies in the name of energy conservation without considering EMF's biological effects. When organizations fail to address the growing database of EMF impacts, however, the result is the tacit and or explicit approval to introduce whole new layers of EMF into every home and neighborhood without a full examination of what potential consequences may arise. 
You're listening to Green Street, and the preceding segment was taken from a seminal work by three scientists, Blake Levitt, Henry Lai, and Albert Manville, who published this warning last year in the journal Reviews on Environmental Health. The three-part series is called Effects of Non-Ionizing Electromagnetic Fields on Flora and Fauna. I read an article the other day by a woman named Diana Cordes, who described her personal observations of this exact phenomenon from the very unique location where she lives with her husband. It's the island of Samos, which is located off the coast of Turkey, and for those mathematicians out there, the birthplace of Pythagoras. Last week, Doug and I reached out to Diana to learn more about her observations on this one-of-a-kind remote island and what it means for the rest of the world. Here's our interview with Diana Cordes. My husband and I are very, very ardent bird watchers. And we moved to Samos and we do a lot of walking. And one of the places that's easy to get to and easy to walk is a nearby mountain, which has um, cell towers on it. At the time it had one. And when they switched from 3G to 4G, I noticed how many birds and insects were just gone. a huge number of things just vanished, not only on that mountain, but in other areas as well. And I started to wonder why, because dung beetles disappeared, um, birds disappeared, all kinds of birds. We have lots of, um, we call them chukars. They're a form of partridge, but they have a cream colored breast rather than a white breast. That's the only difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and there used to be hundreds and hundreds of them. And suddenly there weren't. And suddenly all kinds of birds were disappearing. So it didn't seem as if there could be very many reasons for them disappearing. You can't say climate change for something that takes place within a year. Mm. If it's short term, it's weather. It's not climate. Correct. And if it's not because of say pesticides or spraying which it isn't up the mountain there's no agriculture after a certain point very little spraying in the first place so it wasn't that so we started asking ourselves could it be the cell towers and so my husband looked it up on google and he waded through 14 pages of no cell towers are perfectly innocent before he hit Mm -hmm. on a balmori article and that's when we got curious So we started pulling everything we could find. And I have to say, I was convinced because the more I looked at places with cell towers, the fewer birds we were seeing. And that's when we saw really big declines starting. And insects were declining parallel with that. But that was really our start in realizing that cell towers were really dangerous. I'm sorry, did you say a a Balmori article or I, I missed that? Yeah, it was a, an article. I think it was historic study. Okay. Go ahead. I'm this is this is very interesting. Yeah. What happened next? Well, once I realized I start first of all I got hold of all the research I could find and I read it. And my husband read it. And 
it looks pretty convincing to me. We used to make trips up to northern Greece quite regularly and also to western Greece because there are absolutely wonderful wetlands in both places and a lot of birds. And from about 2015, where they had put in 4G earlier than some of the other areas, we noticed a real decline in, on the west coast. But we didn't know at the time what to attribute it to. We just knew that the birds weren't there. Once 4G came in, we had taken a trip to the north the year previously, and there were lots of insects and lots of birds. And once 4G came in and we saw the declines here, we thought we went back and the insects weren't there just within a year, right? We, if you're driving through wetlands, especially in an old VW, which has got an absolutely flat front, you should be getting insects on the windshield all the time. Yep. yep. And we weren't. And the birds weren't there. But what was there was huge numbers of cell towers, which hadn't been there before. Hmm. And you were getting antenna parks with, say, 15 cell towers, and the birds were disappearing. So I wrote a paper about that, and that's kind of how I got acquainted with various people who are fighting wireless. The reason I wrote the paper was I sent it off. I must have sent off about a thousand copies of it to various charities. And I have to say, with very little result. Do you have a background in science, Diana? No. My mm-hmm. mother would tell you that she never dared come in my room for all the creepy crawlies in jars. And that, <laughs> that started very young. With all the research that you've done, Diana, have you also come upon the reasons for the decline? What is actually happening to the birds and their food supply, obviously insects and have you looked into that and, uh, you know, and kind of confirmed that with your own observations? Yeah, actually, I really was able to confirm it yesterday. Insects are declining, but now they're really declining. So I think insectivore birds were still finding food until recently. Now they're not. But what I think was happening with the birds is sterility. Essentially, what's happening is that birds have been going sterile. And yesterday, we went off to one of our local wetlands, small lagoon, and there were seven pairs of ready shell duck, which is a big duck. And at this point, there should have been loads of chicks, little ducklings. And so you have seven pairs of adult ducks and not a single chick. We sat there and we watched for two hours. And the chicks were not in the reeds because the parents didn't go near the reeds. They just sat out there in the middle of the water and there were no ducklings. Further down the road in another wetland, there is a pair of the same ducks and they had six ducklings this year. But in this wetland where there should have been loads of ducklings, there weren't any. Also, we get flamingos there and they come in winter and it's used that lagoon is used primarily as a kind of nursery for the flamingos. So what happens in the winter is you get a lot of black and white baby flamingos, first years, who are usually being minded by several second and third year flamingos. They're not fully adult until they hit about four. And then the, there's a few adults and they come and go. But it's a babysitting service, essentially. This year, there were four, maybe five babies. And that's it. And that we that more never came and very few adults. So I think the birds are going sterile. 
DNA damage. It's very interesting. Mm. I know that there's been speculation that the radiation can interfere with navigation, but clearly that's not the issue for you. You were still seeing the adults, but just not the, the babies. Well, no, there weren't very many adults either. And there is a navigation issue. You can really see it this year. We're getting very few migratory birds this year. The Sheldock are residents, so they're not an issue. But we're getting very few migratory birds at all. And we've had some birds that shouldn't be here. We had blue-cheeked bee eaters a couple of weeks ago, a pair of them. I've never seen them in my life. They should be either on the border between Syria and Turkey or on the Euphrates. And they should not be here and they weren't finding anything to eat. We sat Mm. and watched them and watched them and watched them and they were doing the occasional dive for an insect, but there weren't very many insects. So there really wasn't enough for them to eat because they eat a lot. Bee eaters are constantly catching insects. So you must be part of a network, even even if it's just a, a non-organized network of, of you know unofficial network of of other birders that do the same thing that you do. And have you had conversations? And do they confirm what you're what you're also seeing, you and your husband? Yeah. Well, there's especially one guy I write to a lot um, who is in Ireland, and he works for the British Trust for Ornithology. And they are seeing some very weird stuff there. They're seeing small flocks of um, glossy ibis, which the closest point that they should be able to see them is the Camargue. They're a southern bird. And they're seeing scops, which is a duck. And they, they come from the States. And they're seeing groups of those. And they're also seeing cattle egrets, which I thought we were the westernmost point for cattle egrets. But um, they're getting them in Ireland in groups of five and seven. And they should not be there. And it's a very, very long way. And this implies that they're really being confused by the electromagnetic fields. Yeah, I was just going to say, this sounds like an electromagnetic issue when you're getting species in areas of the world that have never been there before. So, you know, that's clearly associated with the unbelievable uptick in uh, in, in all this man-made radiation, not only coming from Earth, but also coming from satellites. There's a yes. huge, huge network of satellites, and that continues to grow exponentially. Diana, who, who's doing the science on this? Are there any labs or universities that are looking into this relationship between RF radiation and the decline in both bird and insect populations and these, these strange migratory patterns? Well, we've got a problem with the birding organizations because they are all in absolute denial that wireless technology has anything to do with declines. Cornell Lab for Ornithology had a meeting. I didn't attend, but other people did. And they tried to ask questions about wireless effect on birds or to make comments about electromagnetic fields and birds. And those comments were all of them ignored. They were not brought up for public attention. They were just deleted. That's so odd. That's so odd because Cornell is, you know, sapsucker woods. We've actually been there. We've been to that ornithology center. Um, We're very familiar with Ithaca, New York. And Ithaca, New York is a very forward thinking community on cell towers and, you know, radiation, you know, from these towers that's impacting 
a wildlife as well as as well as humans. So that's very odd that the Cornell organization is is ignoring those comments. Doesn't doesn't sound right. They're not the only ones. The Audubon Society is currently promoting a wireless Wi-Fi operated app that you can stick in your garden and it will oh, identify God. all the bird calls in your garden and then you can play them back with using some sort of app. Um, wow. BirdLife International, which is the big umbrella organization for a lot of national birding organizations, is doing has been doing nothing for years except promote tagging of birds, then smartphone apps that you so that you can find a tagged bird in the forest. They are promoting wireless technology. They are not looking at it as as a problem. They are promoting it. Wow. This is the big story. This is the big story. <laughs> yes, is that you've got these so well-established and revered organizations, especially the Audubon Society, that are just ignoring the facts that are right in front of their noses. No, they are completely ignoring them. The Audubon Society published some a piece on their website called Birding in the Year 2025. And it's all about apps for finding tagged birds. And that's how you're going to find birds in the future, except that there won't be any birds because there won't I was be just any insects say. and they won't have anything to eat. Wow. No problem. Wow. Okay, so a, a decline, a, a worldwide decline in the number of birds is not really something that these organizations can ignore. No, no, no. The Cornell meeting was based on the fact that three billion birds have gone missing from the 1950s. But you see, what we're doing is we're moving the goalposts in terms of where when birds started really declining. If you look at birds declining from 1950 to 2020, you've got 70 years. And what they're not doing is saying, we've seen a really big decline in birds from 1990 to 2020, which is the period when wireless started. Yep. Um, so what, they, what you do is you just cover it by extending the period you're looking at. There are all kinds of reasons why birds have declined since the 50s. Um, all kinds of pesticides, DDT, loss of habitat, it goes on and on. But you've seen a really big decline, especially since 3G wireless. And they must know that. But what they're doing is they're extending the period of the decline so that they, nobody says wireless. So, so this is exactly what they do with exposure limits, Diana, at least here in the United States, which is they, they allow manufacturers to average the radiation exposure from their devices over a long period of time instead of the actual spikes of radiation, which is how humans and obviously other living things, other organisms, actually experience the radiation. You know, I'm thinking about what a unique situation you have where you've got this this mountain where there aren't the confounding factors of pesticides and habitat loss and all those things. You're really in a unique position to observe exactly what's going on just from the RF radiation. Yeah, that was why I thought maybe I should try to do something about it because we really are in a unique situation. We're living on a part of an island where there are really very few pesticides being used. And, you know, there's a couple of olive groves get sprayed here and there, and that that's it. Mm -hmm. It's wild. Mm -hmm. It's wildland. Mm -hmm. 
um, where we've got people farming organically on either side of us. And I mean, we're talking summer gardens here. We're not talking large scale farming. Right. It's wild up the mountain. It's wild below us. And yet we're still losing everything. Mm. Why? Ah. It can't be pesticides. Right. No, I mean, no. Although pesticides have been, yeah, I mean, certainly there, there is a lot of science and, you know, it has been confirmed that we lose birds to, uh, to pesticide use for sure. Yeah. But, you know, and that was the big issue 20 years ago was birds and pesticides. And Audubon was all over that because that's how I mm -hmm. first got to know Audubon, because I actually went to one of their conferences and talked about pesticides. And the guy from the Scotts companies, one of the biggest manufacturers of lawn pesticides in the world, you know, was there, you know, arguing with me about this. But that's very, very interesting that they're not making that shift or that they're not interested in making that shift. You know, this smacks of everybody being uh, supportive and protective of their technological world that they live in. They don't want to and stop also, it. It's funding. I'm sure it's funding. I think that the people oh, yeah. who are sitting on the boards of these organizations oh, yeah. are oh, actually yeah. Google, Apple, Vodafone, these mm. people. That's that's always the case. This really needs to be brought to light. This will be uh, an interesting conversation that we have on our radio show, but we will move it further than this uh, than this show. I feel so privileged right now. I mean, I, I sit in my office and I literally could reach out my window and touch a pair of morning doves that have nested mm. there. Um, so, you know, I'm just watching them every day, all their, you know, their antics building their pathetically, you know, fragile nest. You think it's fragile, like a, Patty. You watch. I know. It looks, it looks like, it looks like a little, a little mat, I'm gonna, right? I'm going to go out on a just limb and say these, these morning doves know how to build a nest and you don't. So. <laughs> so Diana, tell us what else you have done in your little corner of the world to bring this, uh, this information to the public even. Well, I talk to a lot of people. Um, this is an island. Everybody mm -hmm. knows everybody. If you keep talking to people, words get, word gets round. And people are seeing major problems. Um, I know several people who have given up growing anything in their gardens because nothing will grow. Um, a lot of people's crops failed last year. Certain crops, onions failed, beans failed, um, squashes failed, zucchinis failed. And so, you know, that, that's an opportunity to say, well, okay, if, if they were all flowering and you didn't get any fruit from them, then, you know, it's because you don't have any bees. And the reason you don't have any bees is because this happened. So you can make a, quite an impact that way. I did sure. try talking to the mayor. He didn't listen. But I'm thinking of maybe trying to make it to local radio. Was that your experience, Diana, and that of your neighbors, the things that were planted, they sprouted, they flowered, and then, you know, nothing else happened? Because they weren't pollinated. Yeah. They, weren't, they pollinated. weren't pollinated. Right. They just weren't pollinated. And the beans, I think, beans and onions, I think something else is going on. I think that's soil acidification. Mm -hmm. Because wireless radiation does affect the soil, and calcium and magnesium leach out. And plants need the calcium, but they're not getting it from acidic soil. So you have to put it back in. And people don't know that. And of course, it's expensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you're just used to, you know, farming on the land and growing things on the land, which naturally, 
you know, has this, uh, this biomass in the soil, um, you wouldn't think that it's not there anymore because of some outside influence, like, you know. Yeah. And I think we're losing soil microorganisms. We're definitely losing earthworms, for instance, um, where the one bed that we had put a lot of calcium on last year, when we dug it this year, we found earthworms. But we've dug up two other beds that we didn't put calcium on, and we didn't see a single earthworm anywhere. So you're losing the earthworms, you're losing these other little soil insects. Um, you find these little brown pupas, little brown centipedes that live in the soil, other things, and they're gone too. So once you start losing soil microorganisms, then, you know, of course, your plants won't grow. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm just thinking that Soil Food Web, which is a, uh, an organization mostly doing just, you know, commercial soil testing, might find that this is the case, you know, all over the world. Because, you know, we, we talk about insects that we see, right? We talk about insects that are used for, for food, for birds and, and other wildlife. But how about all those soil organisms? They have to be declining as well, as you've just mentioned. So that's an interesting uh, angle on this, isn't it, Doug, mm -hmm. to, talk to, uh, to talk to somebody? I mean, we work with, uh, you know, soil biologists quite a bit because we do a lot of training in organic lawn care and landscaping. And of course, you know, soil testing and uh, putting soil amendments into the, uh, into the soil are very important, including compost that has high concentrations of bacteria and microorganisms and you know, fungi and so on. We're finding that compost isn't breaking down. It isn't breaking down because there's no soil biology to break it down. Yeah, it's not breaking down as it should. I mean, you turn it over and instead of being, instead of all kinds of things crawling out of it, it's just dry. It occurs to me, Diana, that I, I wish more people were generally more observant of the things around them as you and your husband are. And also, I just have to say, it's so fascinating what you're saying. And I think people should kind of be indebted to you for being on being the lookout and seeing what's happening in such a, a clear fashion. It's it's remarkable. Well, I think people are spending too much time on computers. I don't. I have very little time to spend on a computer. And I'm outside all the time. If you're inside, even if you care hugely about the environment, you're not outside looking at it. And as for the kids, I mean, they just walk everywhere with a smartphone in their hand. So they're not looking at all. This is true all over the world. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's true all over the world. So, Which is why we need the cell towers. I mean, we're in a vicious cycle of trying to satisfy the demand for electronic communications. But in the meantime, it's costing us our environment. Yeah, I'm trying to pretend that anything that's electric is green. Anything that uses battery or whatever, that, that that's green, which it's not. I mean, Katie Singer does a brilliant job in her letters to Greta pointing out how very not green all this stuff is. I think they should be required reading for anyone over the age of 15. Do you have, uh, you know, a network of anybody? Are you on your own, Diana? Or is there a, a small network that you're that you have that is uh, thinking the same way? Mm, the people I talk to are pretty widely scattered and some people take it seriously and some people don't. I think people are taking me more seriously now that they actually see crop failing and things disappearing. But when you talked about birds disappearing a few years ago, 
it was, you know, can't be bothered, you know. But actually what's happened is, you know, in, in the winter, you get lot, you used to get lots of people hunting birds. Now, of course, no one's hunting because there aren't any birds. So they're listening. So, Diana Cordes, this has been really, really fascinating. Anything else you want to add that we haven't talked about? I think we need to engage youth because if we don't, we've lost. And they are much, much, much too involved with the technology. And they're not at all involved with nature. Um, whatever they, they may sign petitions, but they have not been out of doors without a smartphone in their hands, maybe for years. We met a young Danish um, guy a couple days ago who is shooting pictures of butterflies for a book. And he had never heard that wireless radiation harms anything. And we had a long talk with him. And he said that he's the only person he knows in Denmark who actually goes outside to look at the bugs. And that all his cohort spend their time on computers or smartphones gaming. They live on their computers. And if they're living on their computers, they're not going to be interested in anything else. And furthermore, they're not going to want those machines taken away from them. So I think the computer, while useful, is the devil's own device, personally. I think it's capable of good, but it has done much more harm than the good it's capable of doing. I'd like to add a warning for anybody who's thinking of coming to Greece for summer holidays. They are directing the cell tower radiation at the beaches. And as a result, a lot of these areas are not only dead, there are no birds and no insects, but my husband and I have been getting rather nasty skin effects, um, red blotches that bleed easily every time we go near any of these areas. And I think it's bloody dangerous to go anywhere near a Greek beach at this point, unless you really know where to go to stay out of the cell towers. And I think this may be happening in a lot of places. It is also killing the sea life, but we won't get into that. But I think that it's actually very dangerous going to the beaches because we're working on this principle that the tourists want as much technology as we can give them. And so the cell towers are directed at the beaches so that the tourists can use their 4G and 5G smartphones. But if we think it's okay to heat the cornea of the eye five degrees, according to ICNRP, um, we may be doing immense damage to people who are already out in the sun. And I think for anybody who's coming here, go up the mountains. Get above the cell towers. Then you'll have a nice holiday. But I really wouldn't come here for the beaches anymore. I think it's too dangerous. You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show, Patty and Doug Wood, and we've been talking today about electromagnetic fields and RF radiation from cell towers and the impact all of this is having on the natural world. Our guest has been Diana Cordas, a naturalist and author who lives on the unique Greek island of Samos, where she's been witnessing firsthand the decline of the bird population brought on, at least in part, by the decline in insects, which in turn has been caused, at least in part, by the massive increase in RF radiation from cell towers. 
Diana reports that the compost is not composting, the gardens are not producing, and birds that should be on the other side of the world are showing up on her island, their internal navigation systems completely disrupted by a disturbance in the electromagnetic fields they use for navigation. This is just one more example of how so often we think we know what we're doing when we really have no idea how nature works or how our actions might be having a tremendous unintended impact on the delicate balance of the natural world. We see this with climate change. We see it with plastic pollution. And we see it here with everyone glued to their phones, oblivious to the world around them, even as the consequences of our actions become clear. Of course, there's a lot of money at stake now. Trillions of dollars have been invested in our wireless networks with more on the way. Wireless antennas fill every major city. 5G small cell antennas are filling every suburb. And tens of thousands of satellites crisscross the sky, beaming microwaves back and forth to Earth receiving stations to keep everyone connected. For what? Is our love affair with TikTok and Instagram worth sacrificing our food supply? Have we reached the point where we will survive as a species just long enough to post one more video to social media before we succumb? At what point will we as a society say, enough? And when will that be exactly? Okay, that's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. If you missed any part of today's show and want to listen again, you can always visit our program website, greenstreetradio.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter and send us messages about the show. We love to hear from you, good or bad, so keep those emails coming. That's greenstreetradio, all one word, greenstreetradio.com. I also wanted to mention once again that we have a couple of campaigns going for people who are concerned about all this wireless radiation. Our primary advocacy campaign is Americans for Responsible Technology. Uh, on our website, you'll find a whole array of tools you can use to push back in your community against the unfettered deployment of wireless technology. That website is americansforresponsibletech.org. Sorry, it's a long URL. Once again, americansforresponsibletech.org. If you have children in school and you're concerned about the dense fog of RF radiation that surrounds kids all day as they sit in their classrooms, you should visit techsafeschools.org, and there you can find information about how schools can easily reduce the amount of radiation in classrooms. You can also arrange to have a legal letter sent to your school about the obligation of school administrators to protect kids from any type of hazard, and that includes RF radiation. That website again, techsafeschools.org. And finally, if you are pregnant, or if you know someone who's pregnant, please tell them to visit the BabySafe Project. This is a project to warn young women not to hold or keep their cell phone anywhere near their developing baby. We have really good science about RF radiation from cell phones and tablets and wireless laptops and its impact on brain development. So please, visit babysafeproject.org and learn how to be careful around wireless radiation. I will put all these websites up on the show page at greenstreetradio.com, so if you didn't get a chance to write them down, don't worry. You can always find them at greenstreetradio.com. Many thanks to our guest, Diana Cordes, our assistant producer, Alan Weiniger, and all of our listeners across the country. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be safe, be well. We'll see you next time. <laughs>